Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 4 of Proustian Paths, the podcast that takes you on a gentle walk through the text of a classic work of French literature, Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time. I am James Holden, and I'm your tour guide for this literary journey. Along the way, I'll be offering you a view of all the novel's key moments, so that if you're a first-time reader, you'll be able to see them from their best vantage points and experience their beauty. Or, if you're already a dedicated Proustian, you'll get a different perspective on the people and places you already know. In this episode, we'll be heading out for the first time along the two paths that lead from the house of the narrator's family in Combray. As we shall see, these two ways are crucial to the physical geography of the area, and also to the psychological geography of the narrator, and, perhaps most importantly for us, the textual geography of the novel itself. This episode will be the moment when, for the first time, we wander down the Proustian paths that Proust himself signposts in his book titles, those on which the narrator himself got lost, and which he would spend the rest of his life retracing in his mind. These two paths are Swan's Way and the Guermont Way. Before we head out, I'd ask that if you enjoy this podcast, please do consider subscribing to it wherever you get your podcasts, so you never miss an episode. Also, if you're able to leave a comment or review, and like the episode, that'd be wonderful. It helps to show a lot, and will help encourage others onto this literary journey of ours. The two specific pathways we're following today cover a lot of ground, so let's not tarry any longer. We'll begin, as always, by mapping the section of text to be covered in the episode, which extends from the line break on page 134 of the Penguin edition of The Way by Swans, up to the end of part 1, chapter 2. The Literary Map In this section, the narrator recalls his family's afternoon walks around Combray in his youth. These would generally follow one of two paths, the Meseglise Way, which is also called Swan's Way, and the Guermont Way. These two paths, we are told, lead in different directions, one heading towards the village of Meseglise, via Swan's estate of Tonsonville, the other towards Guermont itself, following the course of the River Vevon. The latter is the longer walk, although it's traversed more quickly in this passage. These two walks, and the descriptions of them, form the textual structure that supports the rest of this section. Proust's narrator outlines each in turn. He recounts a journey along the course of each, setting out in beautiful, sun-dappled detail the landscapes that could be seen along their ways. The recounting of these two typical journeys allows for a number of anecdotes and related stories. These are concerned with the locations, the people associated with them, or with all the things that the paths represent for the narrator. The broader stories become hooks on which to hang more topical stories. We head out first along the Meseglise Way. Here we encounter banks of hawthorn bushes, whose white and pink flowers enchant the narrator. Having passed these, the narrator encounters Gilbert Swan, Charles Swan's daughter, for the first time. Together with Gilbert, we meet a certain lady in white, her mother, and also another man, someone we're told is called Charlu. Next, we learn a little more about Monsieur Vantoy's house, which, as we learnt last time, is situated along Swan's Way. The narrator follows his reminiscences, recalling other walks down Swan's Way some years later, the year his aunt Leonie had died. Then, by a chain of remembrance, he recounts a moment still more years later 
when he witnessed a startling scene between Mademoiselle Vantoy and her lover. The narrator then takes us down the Guermont Way. We are shown the River Vivonne, with its water lilies and the ruins that run alongside it in the neighbouring fields. The narrator's thoughts then turn to the Duke and Duchess de Guermont themselves and the magic they possess for him. He recounts the time the Duchess attended a wedding at the church in Combray, the occasion he saw her for the first time. This event, and the retelling of it, leads him to muse on his disappointment at not being able to write, a theme he'd touched on before and which will quickly become a central concern. Specifically, he recalls composing a short passage describing the three nearby church steeples. Our section ends with Proust explaining how, taken together, these two ways, Swan's Way and the Guermont Way, form the, quote, deep layers of his mental soil. These paths are the ground upon which all the rest of his thinking has been built, and out of which his life has grown. Literary Landmarks This literary landscape, which amounts to a physical and psychological geography, is peppered with a number of landmarks and reference points. Recognising these will allow us, as always, to orientate ourselves so we don't get lost as we wander along these ways, and as we seek out the best literary critical views. Beginning with the Meseglise way, it's worth highlighting the following. Firstly, there's the fact that, for the narrator, this path begins at the family's front door and follows a line common to many routes. There's Swan's Lilacs, the caretaker's lodge, and the estate's white gate. This is all on page 136. And then, following these, there are, amongst the profusion of other flowers, the hawthorn bushes, which blossom in both white and pink. There's Swan's Park itself, in which the narrator sees Gilbert, her mother, and Charlotte. There's Vantoy's house, which is situated in front of a bank that rises up level with the upstairs windows, and from which it is possible to see in. Then in the distance lies Meseglise itself, a town that's an A destination, in that it marks an end point that's aimed towards, but is never reached. For the narrator, the Meseglise way never leads all the way to Meseglise. The journey along the Guermont Way, on the other hand, is marked by a number of different landmarks and reference points. We begin with the fact that the Guermont Way is longer than the Meseglise Way, meaning that the family only go that way on fine days. There's the Vivon River, alongside whose banks the path runs. We are told that there are the ruins of an old chateau in the fields alongside the way. This is on page 168. These ruins protrude from the ground. Also, just as the Meseglise Way never leads to Meseglise itself, at least for the narrator, so too the Guermont Way never leads to Guermont. Not yet, anyway. Stepping back off these two paths, and also away from their specific geography, there's a number of general ideas that we can use to better orientate ourselves as we take in the view. There's the diverging ways themselves, the fact that they are accessed by different doors, lead out of the town in different directions, and thereby remain, so it seems, permanently separate geographically, and also in all that they represent. This will remain true for at least the next 2,000 pages, after which it will become necessary to re-evaluate our map. There's the suggestion, already being made here, 
that these two paths correspond to the different paths that the narrator will himself continue to walk throughout his life. There's also the fact that, just as he walked upon them, so too does the narrator build his social and interior life upon them. And with these things marked on our map, let's take in the literary critical view of this passage. The Literary Critical View And so, clutching our newly drawn literary map, freshly marked with a few points of interest, we can at last head out down these two ways. It's at this point that we usually take in the literary critical view of the section traversed. Today, I want us to focus not on the views that a walker along one of the two ways would see. Instead, I want to get the best view of the two ways themselves. The Mesoglise Way and the Guermont Way are, of course, physically distinct. In fact, they are so distinct that they require the family to leave their house through different doors. This is to say that they share no step in common. They literally begin in different places and follow two different routes away from Combray. In a sense, they mark two trajectories, two separate vectors. Just as the two ways are physically distinct, so too are they temporally distinct. Okay, it's true that they exist at the same time, in the same epoch. However, they don't exist in the same moment for the narrator. For him, they don't exist in the same time frames, but consecutively, one after the other. Proust explains this as follows, quote, Our habit of never going both ways on the same day shut them off, so to speak, far apart from one another, unknowable by one another in the sealed and uncommunicating vessels of different afternoons. That's on page 136. This is one of my favourite phrases in the whole of the search. I love the idea that an afternoon is a kind of temporal vessel that can be filled with happenings. It's a vessel that has certain events poured into it, which it preserves, and which it also keeps separate from events contained in other, similar afternoon vessels. For our purposes, it's only important to realise that Swan's Way and the Guermont Way are separated in both space and time. The two ways, then, are physically and temporally discrete entities. They're also psychologically distinct. We're told that they occupy different parts of the narrator's brain. He writes, I set between them, much more than their distance in kilometres, the distance that lay between the two parts of my brain where I thought about them. That's again on page 136. The two ways are spaced out in his mind. They exist, he says, on different planes. The act of walking down them is different, and so too is the act of thinking about them, and the meaning that they come to contain. The Mesoglise Way and the Guermont Way are not just paths to follow on an afternoon walk. They are also two paths for the narrator to follow in his life. As such, he doesn't only walk down them on the spring afternoons of his childhood, as he describes here. Rather, he continues to walk them for the rest of his life, and the story of In Search of Lost Time is the story of this long walk. We know that the sobs from the drama of The Goodnight Kiss remain to be heard, even when the narrator is old. So too the pathways of his childhood remain to be trod, even as he ages. Already here, and without looking down our Proustian path too far, we can begin to see what these two geographical and life paths represent. Let's look at this beginning, as the narrator himself does, with Swansway. 
The way by Swans is the way to Swan's house, and to Swan himself. It thus represents a number of things. For the narrator, to take Swan's way means, in the simplest sense, going the way of his beloved Hawthorns, in which he finds a certain kind of beauty. It means possibly being caught out by bad weather, as the family chooses this path over the longer Germont way when the forecast isn't good. However, it also represents so much more. Broadly, Swan's Way is a way of love, passion and jealousy. We've already been told that, in the eyes of both the narrator's family and the other locals, Swan has made a, quote, unfortunate marriage, and the family's familiarity with him is now predicated on that fact. In the section of text we're walking through today, the family only takes Swan's Way because they believe there's no chance of them bumping into Madame Swan. We don't know Madame Swan yet, we have not met her, or at least, we aren't aware that we've met her. However, we soon will. In the upcoming section of text, the novel within the novel, we'll learn the entire history of the Swans' romance. We'll begin looking at that next time. It's important to note now the intertwining of love and social standing, and that the one can compromise the other. For the narrator, this path of love, passion and jealousy, and its connection to Swan, is embodied in his love for Gilbert, which blossoms in this section with their first meeting. It begins with his seeing her, his projections onto her, and his non-comprehension of her, revealed much later to be a mutual miscomprehension. We also know that Swan is an art collector and an expert critic. You'll remember the family conversations on the terrace about him being a connoisseur. That was back on page 20. Swan's way, therefore, is the way of art. It's the way of painting, certainly. It's also the way of music. We already know that Van Toy's house is situated on the Mesoglise way. This man was the family's piano teacher and was also a composer. We saw last time how he was bashful in his desire to play his works to the family during a visit. Next time we'll learn more about the brilliance of this man's work and how it came to define Swan's life to an extraordinary extent, as indeed it will the life of the narrator himself but that's looking a long way down our path. Lastly, Swan's Way is connected to notions of sexuality, voyeurism and sadism through Mademoiselle Vantoy, and in particular the scene the narrator relates in which he saw her lover spit on a photo of Vantoy himself. This scene operates as a direct parallel to that earlier scene, mentioned a moment ago, in which the old composer placed out a score on the music stand only to remove it when it was noticed. Here it's the photo of the man himself that's moved. By contrast, the Guermont Way is the path that leads to the home of the Duke and Duchess de Guermont. Literally, it leads to their estate. More generally, it's symbolic of the journey to the highest society, the Faubourg Saint-Germain, and those who hold financial and social power. The Guermont themselves rule over the area. They preside over Combray itself, as is made clear in the church scene. The Guermont lineage is literally the ground on which the worshippers walk in the Combray church. You can find all this on page 175. The Guermont Way is also the way of history and myth. The Duchess is related to those others who have had that name, we are told. She is also connected, through that lineage, to Geneviève de Brabant and the fantastic scenes displayed in the narrator's magic lantern. So, in a manner of speaking, the modern Guermont are lit from within for the narrator by the light of myth. More specifically, the path to their house is the way of history, French history. 
there are literal ruins of a historic chateau lining the route. To walk along the Guermont Way is literally to see history rise up from the ground. Swan's Way is the shorter of the two ways. It also involves less travel for the narrator as he heads towards all the things that it represents. The Guermont Way is a longer route, and so it will prove a longer journey for the narrator in his life to approach all the things for which it stands. It'll take him longer to reach the house of the Guermont than it will Swan's house. As he himself says on page 135, quote, I was to know more about it one day, but only much later. Our stroll through this section of the text has seen us walk in two directions. Our ongoing stroll through In Search of Lost Time itself will find us continuing to walk down these two ways. They structure the novel ahead, just as they go on to structure both the mind and the life of the narrator himself. This much is clear from the titles of the different volumes, this first, the one we're reading, being The Way by Swans, or Swan's Way in English, and the third being The Guermont Way. Immediately before us on our Proustian path is Swan himself. The Mesoglise way might not lead to Mesoglise. It does, though, lead us to Swan, the man, and his past, at least as they come to be understood by the narrator. In our next episode, we'll be setting out on our journey through the novel within the novel, A Love of Swans. This is the story of the affair that led to Swan's so-called unfortunate marriage. It will find us in a completely changed setting, which means we'll have to set our existing maps aside and draw up new ones. It'll also involve a change in both pace and narrative style. Specifically, we'll be covering the section from the beginning of A Love of Swans, on page 191 of the Penguin edition, to the line on page 218, beginning to Madame Verdurin's great surprise. If you have a different edition, this is basically the section covering up to the end of Swan's first visit to the Verdurin Salon, including the descriptions of Van Toy's sonata. It just remains for me to say, thanks for joining me for this leg of our gentle literary walk. I hope you've enjoyed the literary critical view. If you have, again, please do consider subscribing to the podcast on your favourite platform and leaving me a review. Don't forget, you can connect with the show over on social media. Just search for at Proustian Paths on Twitter and Instagram. You can also send an email to proustianpaths at gmail.com. It'd be great to hear from you. The podcast also has a fancy homepage where you can find all the information about the show and relevant links. culturalwriter.co.uk slash proustian-paths.html So with that being said, let's head to Paris, and in particular, to the Verdurin Salon. Let's join the little clan.